Hello and welcome to the TIFF podcast. I'm Shamil Haroon. Preparing for consultant interviews can be one of the most daunting tasks for anyone approaching the end of their specialist training in public health. I spoke to Dr. Ellis Friedman to discuss this further. Hi, um, Dr. Friedman. Um, Thanks very much for joining the podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself, please? Yes, so I'm Ellis Friedman. I am currently the Faculty of Public Health's Director of Training and also the Faculty Advisor for London. Um, And very shortly, in June, I expect to become the Faculty's Director of Finance. My specific uh, roles, which relate to this interview, are that I have been a Faculty Assessor on Advisory Appointment Committees for over 30 years, and I've served during that period on over a hundred such committees. I, before I retired a couple of years ago, was a director of public health for 25 years. And my own uh, interview history is that I was only unsuccessful in interviews twice over a period of over 30 years. Gosh, that's a wealth of experience. Well, thanks for the introduction. Could you uh, start by just giving some um, background to um, to consultant interviews and how things are changing and whether the current training system is kind of adapting to the new landscape of um, of the employers that are out there now? Yes, I think that there is now an increasing acceptance that since the changes to the public health structures in 2013 that we perhaps as a profession haven't adapted ourselves to the new requirements of employers, in particular local authorities and to a lesser extent Public Health England. Uh, Those two employers being by far and away the biggest employer of public health consultants in the country. Um, Things have changed uh, to a very small degree in the universities, but that's hardly worth thinking about. But what we have noticed, uh, I as an experienced person in these matters, is that there has been uh, a degree of underpreparedness for local authority um, appointments committees in particular, but to some extent Public Health England uh, appointments. And for that reason, uh, the faculty, partly at my behest, has put on uh, a course, which it's this year going to repeat four times, to help prepare uh, registrars and experienced consultants as well for interviews. Great. And and what would be your top tips that you'd give to registrars who are preparing for their consultant interviews? Well, because there are many common remediable errors that we find, um, because we think that quite often uh, people are unnecessarily not giving a good account of themselves we have prepared a list uh, predominantly myself prepared a list of the sorts of things that you should prepare before and during the interview Uh, there are 13 so I'll try to run through them quite quickly so first you need to know yourself Uh, you need to be able to answer the question why do I want the job 
and where do I see myself in five years? Employers usually expect positive reasons for applying and a commitment to their organisation. Secondly, you should visit, or if this is not possible, make sure you discuss the post with the Director of Public Health. Thirdly, you should demonstrate local knowledge of the area, the geographical area which you're applying for. Fourthly, achievements speak louder than words, so concentrate on things which you have done which are verifiable rather than just talking a good case. Right? Mm-hmm. Fifthly, answer the question you've been asked. Aim for a well-structured reply. Avoid rambling, terseness or verbosity. The length of an answer usually should be about 90 seconds. If they want to ask a supplementary, they will do. And generally speaking, the panel will be very happy if they can cover each topic in, say, three minutes. So spending that amount of time allows them time to ask a supplementary if they need to. Show financial value for money awareness. Increasingly, organisations you're going to work for are going to be concerned about getting good quality services when they're having to work in a in a situation where they are having less money in real terms that is true both of public health england and of local authorities seventh keep well within the time limit set for the presentation so if you've been told you've got 10 minutes prepare a talk maybe that you've tested out and takes nine minutes because probably in the event it might take a little bit longer in the real world But the last thing you want is to prepare a talk and then only get five, six of the way through rather than completing it. And what what are trainees usually asked to present on? What would be a typical topic? So very often um, you are asked a topic which includes something about the local area, maybe a specific broad challenge that they have. and you may well be asked to say, well, what would you be your your priorities and why for the next year? What would you um, feel that you could accomplish in the first year of your of your job? Explaining why. Right. Mm-hmm. So something like that is normally a broadly based question, which allows you to demonstrate that you have uh, both the ability to express knowledge clearly but you have um, skills in presentation as well. Um, Now, these presentations differ in that sometimes you are given the question, let's say, a week or two before, in which case they will naturally expect a high degree of presentational skills. Um, You can obviously use visual aids, uh, usually EE techniques, Um, whereas on other occasions, you may be given the question uh, a couple of hours or maybe an hour before the interview. And there you're being tested to see whether you can cope rapidly with needing to, with, with making a presentation, having not been given that much time to think about it. Mm-hmm. So that, is, if you like, is a little bit more akin to our OSPI skills that we're testing in the part two examination. 
right. and different places used you know are testing for different skills but in both cases sticking to the time limit clearly is important because there will be some places that will allow you to go on beyond your time and then in effect penalize you in the group discussion at the committee others will simply say we started giving you a warning 30, 30 seconds before your time ran out your time's now run out you need to stop and you may have stopped without your conclusion because clearly a, a good presentation ends with a conclusion of that presentation right? so um, hence the reason of course i've given these as top tips is that they are all relatively common failings um, amongst trainees and experienced consultants at the moment uh, the experienced consultants, the established consultants who are obviously going for jobs are often people who have been displaced from other jobs, often by reorganisation. And those are the ones that we see struggling rather than the typical established consultant who is just moving to a job which they think will be better than the one they have at the moment. So uh, it's that first group that we find are having a problem at the moment. So if I, if I continue with the top tips... It's respecting the councillor's ultimate authority, right? So there's a, a different mechanism for uh, power relationships in a um, local authority compared to Public Health England or, or the old NHS. The councillors ultimately expect that their decision will be the final decision. So that needs to be respected. Prepare responses to topical questions. Ensure you know the key scientific and organisational facts. Try to have an appropriate non-verbal communication because experience tells us that, that committees maybe unknowingly make a lot of their decisions on issues like smiling, making eye contact, wearing appropriate dress. Understand that the local authority usually has a weak evidence-based culture and a strong emphasis on democratic accountability. All elements of the interview process are important. So the faculty assessor may and probably will only be there for the actual interview process, but other processes are now very common in the appointments process. And those could include psychometric testing, what I euphemistically call trial by sherry. In other words, meeting a group of um, people concerned with the job, not necessarily just the employer, but maybe voluntary organisations, the CCGs, etc. And you will circulate around the room making small chat to people who've been involved. Uh, there are other mechanisms for meeting with other partners. For example, you might need to make a presentation to other partners. Um, you will sometimes get tested on arithmetic ability, on linguistic ability. So there's a range of different tests which all ultimately are taken into account by the final decision-making body, which is the AAC, which is why the appointments committee the faculty always suggests should be the last mechanism in the appointments process. 
Great. And my final thing is to keep calm. Right? Nobody is perfect throughout an interview. And so try not to carry, if you like, the baggage of a poor answer into the next answer. Keep, try to keep calm if necessary. Use little tips like taking a sip of water and thinking about things and having a silence for 10, 15 seconds. That's perfectly fine before you when you're thinking about answering a question. Right. So I'm sure some of the discipline that you get from the Part B exam, when if, if one scenario doesn't go so well, mm. and not carrying that over onto the next scenario. Exactly. It's, it, that is a very good analogy. Would would uh, arranging a mock interview be useful? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I'll give a small plug in now for the interview course that we run, and that is one of the parts of the day which people find very useful. And that is something which I certainly think uh, you should be doing before you have your first interview. So I would say any specialist registrar should should be doing it. Perhaps an established consultant may not feel the need, but even for them, I think it may be something that is useful. Great. And the more you can do that with somebody who is an experienced observer, has some experience of it, the better. But even doing it amongst other specialist trainees and asking for feedback, I'm sure even that would have a value. And information on this course, is that all available on the faculty website? Um, certainly, uh, all the information about applying for the course, etc., is on the faculty website. I'm not sure how many of our materials that we use during the course are on that website. Uh, but when you apply for the course, you obviously get an information pack with it, which goes as information. So I suspect... But I'm not sure that because we charge, I hope understandably for the course, that that's one of the reasons that we probably don't have all of the information on the website. We wait until we know that people are going to partake in the day as well before releasing some of the information that's uh, given you know, online. And it sounded like from your top tips that much of it really comes down to knowing the organisation uh, knowing who your employer will be, and I, I imagine you'd have to really prepare, uh, tailor your preparation towards the type of job that you're applying for. D- does it vary quite a lot, say, between a local authority job interview and one at PHE? Yes, I mean, there, there, there are variations, certainly, between those organisations, but also between organisations. And uh, at this point, I, I just want to exemplify why I say, you know, demonstrate local knowledge of the area. You know, you to, to get a job, if you can, you know, realistically flatter some of the people on that committee, you know, flatter them both in, in knowing what things they've done positively, what things they've done not so well in, that you understand some of the challenges that they have, that all helps convince them that you've taken the time and trouble to understand the patch and therefore that they should believe you when you say you really want to work there. So that's partly what you're doing. And local authorities, much more than old health authorities, have got autonomy over how they organise affairs and can be quite different in the way in which they organise their services. 
So it is important to try to individuate your responses to the local circumstance, right? Uh, and it's quite easy for any organisation to find out how well they've been doing, you know, and and to relate that to their population so that you can say sensible things about how well or badly they've been doing, but also that helps you question spot what you're likely to be asked about. So, if, for example, um, the organisation's population has uh, had poor um, vaccination uh, uptake, then it's quite likely that you're going to be asked the question about how that might be improved. Mm. So, so that's clearly important. Uh, with the local authority uh, appointments committee, um, the orientation and the power is with the local authority. And that's why some of the tips are orientated towards their particular uh, ethos, which is less evidence based, say, than Public Health England and to what we've generally experienced during our training, where we're much more we expect people to be more scientific, to be more rational, to base more of their views on an evidence-based criterion, whereas a counsellor will not generally have that background and will be uh, intuitively more interested in what things connect with the population, what things are likely to ultimately uh, be vote gainers or vote losers for them. So they come from a different, valid, but different perspective, and that needs to be recognised. For Public Health England, um, they obviously are much more attuned with how people have been trained within public health, because virtually everybody there has been trained through public health, not all of them, some are civil servants, etc. Uh, and therefore, um, it's perhaps easier to identify the sorts of knowledge and experience that they would regard as being apposite for the questions which they will give in an interview. Could you say a bit more about how consultant interviews normally run and who normally makes up the panel? Yes, so traditionally the um, advisory appointments committees for all consultants in this country, public health and otherwise, were covered by a statutory instrument. Now, when Public Health moved in 2013 into Public Health England, local authorities, etc., the regulations changed, and it is now only Director of Public Health Appointments which require an advisory appointments committee and require a set composition. That composition is roughly of seven people, uh, with representatives of uh, all of the main players, Public Health England, the local authority, the CCG, the faculty, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. From 2013, all the other posts within public health, um, they are just covered by Department of Health guidance. And that guidance, in effect, says mirror the arrangements for director of public health appointments and therefore the faculty advises that there should be a similarly constituted 
committee for a consultant appointment, whether that be a, for a local authority appointment or a PHE appointment. Um, now, because local authorities are autonomous, they don't always agree to do that. But usually they will. And so usually you should expect to have a committee of around seven people. The times when that generally won't happen are when the post is not for is not a long term substantive post. So, for example, if it is covering maternity leave, it, if it's a short term locum of six months in circumstances like that, a committee of maybe three people or four people is quite common. Right. And, and how, how do the interviews normally run? So you mentioned a presentation to begin with. and yeah so, by... the, the, yeah, so the presentation isn't inevitable, but it probably occurs in the majority of cases. Um, just like if I run through the other psychometric testing, I would say occurs in the majority of, of interview processes now. The trial by Sherry and other meetings with partners, probably in about half the cases you would get that as well. It's rare simply just to have one process of the appointments committee. Now, um, generally speaking, uh, the uh, interview stage will last between 45 minutes and an hour. The committee will have a chair. The, that chair almost, if, it, if it's a local authority appointment, will almost always be a councillor from the local authority. You are able to ask beforehand who's going to be on the committee, but they aren't obliged to tell you. Uh, but again, that's a tip that some people would give in a talk similar to mine. Um, ask who's on the committee, because, of course, nowadays you can Google them, etc. And that might possibly help you to question spot or to understand some of the likes and dislikes of particular people on the interview. Um, so for some people, that's a little bit of a comfort to know beforehand who's going to be on the committee. But you won't necessarily be told. Uh, the format then is for each member of the committee to ask questions. And for most committees, they would probably limit that to two questions plus a supplementary. Every candidate must, under HR guidance, be asked the same questions or the same initial questions supplementaries can be varied right and so if you assume that there are um, seven people on on the committee and each ask two to three questions let us say then that you might expect to have 15 questions asked plus supplementaries if you then say that there's a presentation of 10 minutes, say, and five minutes for other incidentals, including being able to ask at the end, what questions do you have of the committee? If there's 45 minutes for that questioning set, uh, part of it, that might last 45 minutes. You divide 45 by 15. You can see now I have made the arithmetic easy. And that gets to the three minutes that I used under my tips for a, a panel being comfortable if every individual question doesn't take more than three minutes and therefore you should aim for about 90 seconds as your uh, model answer when you're trying to prepare yourself for an interview. Great thanks and what what 
uh, tend to be the most common questions that crop up at interviews? So the common questions include, uh, first of all, the one that I've uh, put in my top tips. Why do you want the job? Where do you see yourself in five years time so that they can both gauge the commitment to organization, but also identify where you see yourself being in years to come? You know, do you see yourself being a, an academic in the future? If so, what area of academia, for example? Um, it's quite common to be asked to summarise your CV, picking out the salient points in relation to the job advertised for, which allows them, uh, the committee, if you like, to be brought up to speed because you in your own word can give a synopsis of your CV but also gives you the opportunity to pick out those parts of your CV which are particularly orientated to the job in question. So clearly, if the job in question had a particular interest in, I don't know, child health, then they'd expect you to pick out some of the accomplishments and experience you've had in child health during your training or during your work experience as a consultant. Then, you, because you are going to be ma managing staff, or probably will be, um, they'll probably ask a question about teamwork, about managing people to try to ensure that you've got some people skills. They might ask uh, questions about presentational skills. Um, then there will almost certainly be questions about topics which they see as major challenges for their organisation. Right? Those may already be included in the job description, or they might be things that have been picked up through your talk to the DPH when you've asked them, you know, what do you see as your main challenges for the organisation? And they may say, you know, we've got to do something about our screening uptake or immunisation or whatever it might be. If, if those things come through uh, from looking at what's on their website or from discussions with DPH, expect questions on it because they'll want to know how you would help them tackle successfully those outcomes, right? They probably will ask, maybe indirectly, about you telling them what things you've actually achieved thus far. It may be a straightforward question like, you know, can you explain what your two uh, top accomplishments have been in public health thus far? And can you explain why you think that they are your best accomplishments? Right? And generally speaking, there they'll be looking for something which is significant and verifiable in terms of an achievement, particularly something where it's had some demonstrable beneficial effect on the population rather than some bureaucratic change like, I don't know, uh, changing a questionnaire. Right. Um, you, so uh, other typical things are you may be asked, clearly, if it's an academic interview you will be asked about your research papers and you know what sorts of ideas you've got about research in the future that will be common um, you may be asked particularly by the faculty rep about are you up to date with your cpd um, they may well ask about what your cpd would be in the future if you were successful in the post so and they would then expect you to both be able to talk about the general uh, things that you want to do in your PDP for the next year, which would be generic things that you'd want to do wherever you got, 
but they'd also have expected you to have some thoughts about what would be the specific needs that you would have in terms of a PDP if you were successful. And again, if you've thought about it, then that clearly will help you in terms of uh, giving a positive impression to the committee. Because, you know, ultimately you are trying to sell yourself to that committee as somebody who is appointable. Because you know, one of the things which I said in my introductory remarks is that no appointment AACs are becoming more common. In other words, even though there are people who are above the line, and these often are trainees who are above the line, specialist registrars who are above the line, they haven't convinced the committee that appointments should be made. You know, and obviously uh, we in the faculty think, you know, that we're we're partly to blame along with others, that we haven't trained people sufficiently well that in a you know that they convince an employer that they should be appointed even though they are above the line in in topic in you know in things like knowledge basis. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, quite a few areas in in your top tips where candidates mm. often don't quite perform as well as they should. Mm. Um, are there any other common pitfalls um, that that you've seen other registrars? Um, fall into in, in consultant interviews that you'd like to highlight? Well, I, I've covered uh, some of them there but I, I, in the top tips, but I'll perhaps just uh, exemplify them more. Um, if you fail to show financial awareness in your answers by talking um, as if you expect the uh, employer to be able to make uh, expensive new developments even though those developments may well be desirable that degree of naivety might well worry the committee sufficiently for them to say we don't think this person's appointable right so you need to think about how that, that they will see it in the context that they are in at the moment uh, to state some more obvious things you do not want to be argumentative you know, clearly that will go down badly um, in a committee. You, you should try to avoid rambling. If possible, and this is what I meant by a well-structured reply, you should start with a, a general response to the uh, question and then gradually go into more specific detail. Stopping at about 90 seconds, because if necessary, they can ask for, for more information. Right. The trick can often be um, to leave them believing that you have extensive knowledge about a particular topic. And if there were only some more time available, you could have gone into far greater detail. They'll never know whether that was true or not. But if you can leave them with that view that it was simply a matter of time that you didn't go into even more detail, that's great. Whereas if you start with some rather small print issue, they're then left wondering, well, why didn't you put it in context to start off with? And they'll be wondering, well, you know, do they know other small print issues equally? So that's why practicing your answers is important. Um, there's a little aphorism I give, which comes from the game of golf. Uh, from Gary Player, uh, who some, I'm sure, listening will have heard of, 
who used to say, the more I prepare, the luckier I get. Right? Definitely and, true. And that, I think, is very true of interview processes. You know, the more you practice, you question spot, you go through those questions, you try to hone them. Clearly, the chances you've been asked exactly the same questions as you've, uh, as you've practiced are not great. But you should become adept at being able to adapt ones that you have already pre-prepared to the particular question you are being asked. And that will obviously help in terms of giving a fluent answer, which is what the committee would like you to give, you know, because the more fluent you are, the more authoritative you are, the more that you can give specific um, key scientific papers in your answers, the more you can talk about the local geographic uh, or historic issues that are relevant to that answer, the better they will like it. You know, and practice helps with all of that. Hmm. And what have you seen particularly strong candidates do well? Well, strong candidates will almost inevitably bring out from their CV those strengths which are included within the CV. Right. So you will be left in no doubt at the end of that interview that the person does have a strong track record where that track record is in right and they will and then you will also have the confidence that they're able verbally to express those accomplishments in a concise relevant way verbally during an interview so you know so that's what people are looking for um and you know, and a good candidate will give people confidence. And so they will, the committee will feel at the end that they know the person, that they understand the reasons why the person wants a job, that they believe that those reasons are compatible with them working with the organisation. And more than that, that they actually believe that the person will be an enthusiastic and valuable member of their local team. They'll have no doubt that the person has the technical knowledge and skills to do the job. Or if they if they're, let's say, a trainee and understandably don't yet have all of those um, experiences uh, developed yet, that they have the skills and the aptitude to quickly be able to learn those in the job right? and have identified any areas which they have not yet covered cogently within the interview as well so that uh, there is a clear impression that the person knows themselves and knows where the gaps are within um, their CV. That does remind me also of another common question which I haven't given to you, which is you're quite often asked uh, to give the two uh, best characteristics and worst characteristics relevant to your job of your character, right? And so you should be prepared to talk about those things which you see as relative weaknesses as well as relative strengths, right? And of course, these are situational. And so clearly things which could be a weakness, as long as you understand them, can in other circumstances be a strength for you. So don't worry too much about that. But again, think about how you might answer such a question. 
And what kind of feedback can candidates expect following an interview? So one of the obligatory roles of the faculty uh, assessor is to offer advice and feedback to the candidate. Now, that is not always said during the interview. Um, So during the interview, it may be that the committee has decided that the feedback will come from another member of the committee. And they will be the people that phone you up and give you the feedback. And that's fine, because clearly you might get some very good feedback from somebody else on the committee. But you should recognise that you can always ask, in addition, the faculty representative. And if you've not been satisfied or perhaps you've got some more questions about how the interview went, just exercise your right and ask the faculty person as well for feedback. Great. And you've mentioned the course that the faculty run on preparing for consultant interviews. Are there any other resources that you'd recommend um, registrars use um, in their preparation? Well, certainly, I I think you should be um, trying to set up some uh, practice sessions, uh, perhaps with uh, your trainer perhaps with other trainees, um, so that you can actually practice your presentational skills, because that is very valuable to to you. I think there are some uh, sites which have uh, published some uh, typical interview questions. So if you're uh, not sure that you've identified all of the uh, typical questions, then that would reinforce that you haven't missed any Uh, common areas that you might be asked. Uh, There are also some generic um, uh, skills that you can find in publications, let's say, from the Open University, which talk about general tips to how to uh, uh, succeed at interviews. And indeed, um, the faculty courses I mentioned before either do that in conjunction with somebody who doesn't come from a public health background, but is more expert in issues like nonverbal communication, for example. Right. And is there anything else we haven't covered that you'd like to to point out? Um, Well, uh, a a minor point which sometimes worries people, which is, does it matter if I ask a question at the end or not? And it doesn't really matter. Uh, Probably most people ask a question. Right. Um, Clearly, if you don't ask a question at the end, um, a way of explaining that is to say, um, uh, I'm I'm pleased to say that I had the opportunity to visit the patch and to talk to the DPH. And the DPH at that time answered all of my relevant questions. So I don't have any further questions now. Thank you. You see, which which allows the rest of the committee to know that you've taken the trouble to visit and to talk to the DPH. One question is fine. I certainly would not be asking three or more questions, right? That would that would seem way over the top and may well lead to them having doubts because they, if you've got that many questions, you should really have clarified that before the interview. So one or two questions, fine. More than that, not so. Uh, but it really doesn't matter if you don't have any questions at all. 
And then the final point that, that I normally make is, you know, nobody gets it perfect. So if you come out or the feedback you get is that you answered well to uh, 80% of the questions, that's fine, right? Nobody gets a perfect interview. Nobody comes out and thinks, I answered every question perfectly, the presentation went perfectly. So don't be too hard on yourself. You know, if you think you've answered, you know, if you get 15 questions, if you think you've answered 12 of those well, you, that's fine. You know, that's as good as you might expect to do. You know, is that sort of 12 out of 15 being answered well? And then recognize that even if you have given a good interview, you can only control your own performance. You can't control what other people do. Right. It's obvious when you think about it. You know, there will be circumstances where there are people who have better CVs than you and have given an interview as good of, as you in terms of that particular CV. And therefore, success can't be guaranteed, even if you give a good account of yourself. Right. So so it's, it's just that there is competition out there. Yes, there's competition out there. Clearly... If nobody's appointed to, you know, and that sometimes happens, you then need to think to yourself, well, that probably is saying something about myself. You know, that's a more sensible response than thinking, oh, they're, the, you know, they, they're a stupid authority. They didn't know what they were doing. They were a duff AAC. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not impossible that that's all true, but it's more likely that you did things within that interview which meant that that you didn't and nobody else got got appointed and that those probably are remediable. Yeah? Uh, of course, it's disappointing when you don't get a job, right? But you need to see this as a learning experience and try to think, how can you prepare better for the future? Hence the need to both practice beforehand, but also to try to get feedback from people that have been there so that you because it's not so easy to uh, judge yourself as to how well it's gone right uh, just like you know i've heard plenty of people come out of their you know part two exam and think oh i did really badly when as an examiner as i was in the past you know i might have known that actually they did very well you know People can sometimes be too harsh on themselves or too easy on themselves because, you know, you, you're, you're, you, you know, during the interview, you're trying to do your best for those questions. You're not trying to think about how well you're doing at the same time. And so to get somebody objectively to tell you how they think it, it went is valuable. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Friedman. There's so much in there that I'm sure will be of huge use to registrars who are preparing for their consultant interviews and really appreciate your time. Well, thanks very much for allowing me to contribute to your podcasts. Many thanks for listening and hope to see you next time.